Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. In our news from strange places this week, with more people getting their news from Twitter instead of the corporate media, what may be in store in the future for breaking news? Uh, and yes, Tim. Forgive the defiance, but I think we should focus on the news part, the science, and not what they tweeted back when they were 10, the science. Hmm, I'll try it again. A problem long posed, now finally an answer. A cure has been found to a rare form of cancer. We'll tell you who found it, what he thinks this means, and dig up some tweets from his early teens. Plus, the good Samaritan whose quickness and breath saved a family of four from a fiery death. We'll ask how he did it, how he made it in time, and why he tweeted this back in 2009. Archaeologists of Unearth, yeah, a series of tweets See, made by this local hero when he was 13. Okay. Will this middle school tweet soon mean his demise? Our report just might win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> Pulitzer Prize in what? Scrolling down, we found immature things immature people wrote down. Our country's at war, and that's the story we saw? War coverage, yes. I'll give it a shot. This Navy SEAL unit is now under fire for a series of tweets. We'll uh, take our magnifier Ed. and pay no attention to how their recent life's been. Of Tell course. you what you should think that says about them. Says about them? What's it say about us that the first thing we do after someone's disgust is comb through their childhood looking for dirt? Okay, I can do this. I assure you, I'm cured. Well, she's the first woman to serve on the board of our town city council. She just signed an accord. We'll comb through the details of what she did right and through years of her tweets in hopes of wrecking her life. Uh, okay, I see, I, I hate this. This is just what we do. Make things controversial for clicks and for views. When we're covering news, should our first thought each time be let's find what they tweeted back when they were nine. Finally, millions can now walk thanks to his prosthesis. But a hateful hand signal when he was a fetus okay. leads many to now question what he promotes. We'll toss him in a well and see if he floats. Thank you, Recent TV Channel and Remy at the News Desk, to bring you what passes for journalism these days, written and performed by Remy. And next up on Arts Express, actress, director, screenwriter, and comedian Kimmy Gatewood, directing and starring along with Margaret Cho in a somewhat personal look at the struggles women face professionally and sexually with men in Good on Paper. Gatewood is our guest this week to talk about her comedy, along with many other things, including starring in Atypical and Comrade Detective on TV, and her strange appearance in epic rap battles of history, as well, Marilyn Monroe and Hillary Clinton. Plus, Gatewood is co-creator of the World War II mock vintage radio comedy, The Apple Sisters. First, let's hear a little of The Apple Sisters referencing Rosie the Riveter, Nazis, and assorted housewives. Then Kimmy Gatewood, who had to face the challenge many times of being told in the comedy world that, quote, women aren't funny, and advising other aspiring female comics, don't ask for permission. Girls, did you know that they really based the drawing of Rosie the Riveter on me? So the guy's not here anymore? We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. We're home. Oh, the boys are home. We can't do it. Nope. Oh. Don't come any closer. It's 1943. I'll just have one. I'm expecting a baby. My husband's home. I gotta make dinner before I get a wallop. Hey, mister, don't get handsy with me. Hey, Buster, keep your paw to yourself. My husband's away at war. You want to see my front lines? I'm pretty sure he's a Nazi spy. When you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. And you ride with two people, you ride with Mussolini. 
Loose lips sink ships. That's why I'm wearing two pairs of underwear. Underwear is being rationed, Cora. I only have enough ration stamps for two tea bags. Girls, you ever just want something because it's rationed? Well, now they're rationing nylons. Next thing you know, they'll be rationing brassiers. We don't accept ration stamps. But there's egg in my drink. Sorry. <gasps> and now women are wearing slacks. Operator, I bet you listen to a lot of conversation. You're the cat's meow. You're the cat's pajamas. Is it good to be meow? Do cats wear pajamas? There's no place like home. Or his house. You can mellow my yellow. He's a real hunk of heartbreak. Make your own breakfast. Buzz, 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 buzz off. Go back to your foxhole. Hey, doll. What's your telephone exchange? Oh, Pennsylvania 65,000. No, it isn't. I slept with a milkman and I liked it. I went to the butcher, the baker, and did you know they closed the candlestick maker? I slept with a postman and he delivered. Don't tell my mother. We're women, we can't read. <laughs> You'll never get pregnant with that attitude. I got a kick in the pants last night for that. Girls, what's sizzling? What's the bacon? I've been laying off the bonbons and pounding on the boom boom. I'm feeling lucky. I feel so retro right now. This is so 1920s. It's just ridiculous. As a woman running for president. That's as far-fetched as making sugar from corn. That's as far-fetched as being able to heat up your food in less than a minute. I just wanted to slap you again. Now, you once played both Hillary Clinton and Marilyn Monroe in epic rap battles of history. What was that all about, and why did you go for playing those two women in particular? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, talk about, like, the uh, dual personality. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know... Um, I was working uh, with uh, Lloyd and Peter, who are the creators of Epic Rap Battles. And when they asked me if I wanted to play Marilyn Monroe, I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> mm -hmm. of course. Um, so uh, I'm, I, was in a com uh, I was in a group called the Apple Sisters, um, a 1940s comedy radio show. So uh, this era is very much up my alley. Uh, and then when approached play Hillary Clinton. It was right in the middle of the, you know, we were, it was the 2016 election, so it was a rather exciting time. It felt like a huge, um, it felt, it, being a, a rapping Hillary Clinton carried a lot more weight than I thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> but it was really fun to get to, like, uh, imitate those characters um, and figure out how they would uh, be badass rappers. Now, is good on paper in any way personal for you, even though you're not the writer? <laughs> you know, this is based on Eliza Schlesinger, who's the star and the writer, on a true story that happened to her. Um, and uh, I loved getting to know every juicy detail of <laughs> what actually happened to her. But I also think that, um, you know, I'm, I'm married now, but I kiss a lot of frogs on the way. And I've had a couple of really gnarly dating stories, including um, one guy who put his number, he, I was working at a bar at the time, and he, he was, seemed pretty nice, and then he wrote his phone number down on a piece of paper, and I flipped it over, and it was his ATM machine with his, uh, ATM receipt with his balance on it, and I was like, maybe I need to reconsider this guy. <laughs> Not because he didn't have money, but because he, I think he just got a ton of money, and I was like, oh, this is um, kind of gross. <laughs> And where did you decide to direct Good on Paper as your first feature film? Well, um, I was looking for a film with a, a strong female lead, and that was a, a comedy. And um, my background, I come from live comedy, and uh, I worked with a lot of stand-up comedians and storytellers on developing their real-life stories into solo shows. And so this kind of felt like a natural... Um, a perfect fit for me, really. And uh, I really like collaborating, and Eliza and I got along terrifically. And I'm really excited to, post-pandemic, to be providing the world with some uh, comedy and um, uh, some, some laughs, a little romance, and, of course, a little uh, mystery. <laughs> I think 
the like all comedy, um, it's uh, comedy is a way to be vulnerable. It is a way to be a truth teller, um, and uh, it is also you've separated yourself enough from the subject that you are able to laugh at it now. And I think that that's the most powerful way to approach uh, everything. Um, I think that this character is uh, very complicated, and she kind of deals with the issue of what it's like to be a woman in comedy, what's, what it's like to be a woman in this industry. She's dealing with all, putting all of her dirty laundry out there, feeling jealous, feeling inadequate, and, uh, but also being messy. And um, I think a lot of characteristics that we would typically see a male lead in a comedy um, exhibit, a uh, anything from the, the 90s or early 2000s, I think we would we'd see these kind of man-child characters. Um, and I think just by being honest to uh, Eliza, what she believes in, her character, and, and the character, creating this character of Andrea, who's unapologetic, I think you can address those issues in a real way. And also just through the character of Margot, played by Margaret Cho, brilliantly, um, their friendship is very authentic. And in particular in that scene when the two female friends are arguing with each other, um, they're able to fight their way through uh, a, a like who's right and who's wrong. And it's not uh, dragged out for another, like, you know, 20-minute scene. It's, they figure it out really quickly. And it's very authentic to female friendships, I think, who are much more um, open, emotional, and fight better. <laughs> And what was it like directing Margaret Cho in the film? She's quite a formidable character. I mean, she is a pioneer in comedy, and it was truly a pleasure to work with her. Um, you know, her and Eliza are both stand-up comedians by trade, and that requires a lot of thought, precision, practice, and so they brought all of their chops and expertise um, in this film. So working with Margaret, you can, uh, she is, uh, pure joy and um, really to meet someone who has that much experience and has been through so many ups and downs in her career and has pioneered for so many women and women of color. Like she is so kind, generous and grounded and so thoughtful. You'd never, you'd never realize you were talking to a living legend. <laughs> now I see your next directing venture is Untitled Savian Einstein Project. What can you say or not about that film? Well, actually, that that project's no longer going forward, but I'm very much looking forward to um, directing a show called um, Single Drunk Female that's going to be on Freeform um, with uh, Jenny Connor at the head and Leslie Headland in the pilot. And um, I also uh, am working on a show called The Big Leap, which is coming out on Fox. So I'm very much looking forward to those shows. How do you see comedy as with good on paper and being funny as what you do playing out or having a relevant role in the problematic world today, especially with the pandemic? I mean, you know, again, I started in, in live comedy and comedy, I think, and satire are always a reflection of the time. And we should always be punching upward at the people that are um you know, making things harder for the little guy. <laughs> and so I think all of that is uh fair play. And as long as we are, you know, approaching, I think, comedy from a truthful place and uh, going after the right bad guys, <laughs> I think uh, there's plenty of room for comedy and conversation because if you can make them laugh and think, then you're really doing your job right. And as someone involved in creating comedy, what are your thoughts about cancel culture and those challenges it presents? Um... You know, I, I think that uh, comedy and art is a continually, and, and art are continually evolving, and something like cancel culture is just a uh, reminder to consistently, constantly evaluate where you are comedically, and, and, uh, and, you know, before you say something, maybe think about it, but also that, you know, We've all said things that uh, maybe we've regretted, and, and it's a good time to think about what you've, what you've said or done. And have you found yourself having to self-censor because of cancel culture? I don't think self-censoring is necessarily the right word for it. 
Um, but I like to think about whenever I revisit a script or if I read something, like just looking at it through a modern day eye always, you know, is important. And just to really be thinking about what, um, what, it, what it would mean to be in someone else's shoes. Now, Good on Paper is about the challenges women face. What challenges have you faced in the male-dominated film world as a writer and director? Yeah, you know, I started off in comedy um, in the early 2000s in New York, and there was this kind of unspoken rule that there was like there weren't that many women doing comedy or improv. So on an improv group, there'd be one woman, <laughs> and I was often that token woman. And uh, one day when I reached out to uh, another female friend on an improv group, we're like, hey, maybe we should get together and do something Um so, you know, I, I you know, I, I've definitely been told by um, superiors um, that, you know, they brought me in because only because I was a woman. If I was a man, they wouldn't have thought I was funny enough or, you know, read articles at the time that women weren't funny. But uh, and I'm glad I, and I hope that the, the young women coming up today, I can help lift them up so they don't have to uh, go through what every generation has had to kind of go through um but yeah it, i've it there's uh we've a long we've a long way to go but um i am hopeful that uh wonderful organizations like film fatales which i'm a part of uh, uh and uh, the dga women's steering committee that we can continue to lift each other up i would say um you know stay stay true to your voice and your art and um, keep making your own stuff and don't ask for permission. Uh, don't wait for someone to give you the job. Go make the job yourself and make it happen. And any last word on Good on Paper? <laughs> I hope that everyone um, uh, watches, laughs, and thinks about their own cuttlefishes in their lives, <laughs> that maybe they have deceived them. <laughs> You know, this film um, is a lot about uh, perception, perception we have of ourselves, perception that we have of others, how we would like to be perceived, how we think we are perceived. And so I think that, you know, um, I'd love everyone to really kind of consider that, you know, we always think the grass is always greener, but, you know, maybe that person that you think has everything that you want, you should just go and talk to them and tell them your feelings. Um, uh and but most of all from you know female audiences and male audiences is you know trust your instincts and uh, uh don't doubt yourself <laughs> and also i hope that this movie people will come together and have spirited debates about who they think is right and who they thought was at fault and at when um while they laugh their uh, buns off and good on paper is out now on netflix you're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, about that Hal Hartley classic Henry Fool, and what it has to do with our next guest on the show, is the reuniting of Henry Fool himself with co-star Kevin Corrigan in a new, yet another highly unusual cinematic offering, Scenes from an Empty Church, a pandemic drama in which both of them reside as masked clerics there, and in Corrigan's case, somehow a Jewish priest. And Corrigan phones in, apparently not from a church, but sounding in this conversation a little as if broadcasting from, well, a confession booth. Corrigan, a more often than not strange combo of melancholy and malice in his movies, sort of explains venturing from portraying hitmen, bank robbers, drug dealers, and kidnappers in movies like Martin Scorsese's The Departed and Ridley Scott's American Gangster, to Father Andrew in scenes from an empty church. First, some scenes from the film, then Kevin Corrigan. New York is on life support. The shops are closed. Our church is also empty. How things up in New York? No anarchy in the streets? It's nothing in the streets. The streets are empty. It's creepy. Look at you. Father Andrew. Is that what I'm supposed to call you now? Or can I just call you Andrew? 
Who's this? Paul. Hi. This is an old friend of mine, a dear old friend. This guy was wild back in the day. It's a good thing he found God or he'd probably be in prison right now. It's not even remotely true. We need as much connection as we could get right now. If that's the case, why not open up the church? No, it's too dangerous. So you're afraid? Aren't you afraid? It would give people hope. I think you're right, but it has to be conditional. Of course. We have to practice absolute safety. People can come in to pray by appointment only. Do you reject Satan? Sure. They have 10 minutes. Well, some people might need more than that. Who prays for more than 10 minutes? Even the Pope doesn't pray that long. You think God wants to listen to that? Does my husband cheat? I can't tell you that. Why? If I told you that, then I'd have to go to Rome to be pardoned by the Pope himself. I thought you were an atheist. Me? No, I'm not an atheist. When I went to seminary, you totally made fun of me because you're Jewish. When you read all these religions, when you get past the, the, the surface stuff, we all want the same thing, peace. Clarity, contentment, it's kind of beautiful. I saw the soul, the physical soul, leave a body. What does it look like? Maybe you're spending too much time at that church? Yeah, those are my friends. My son, the mensch priest, I love you. She's gonna show you something that'll blow your mind. Everyone sins. Yeah. Hello, Prairie. Hi, and welcome. What got you interested in playing a priest in Scenes from an Empty Church, Father Andrew, and what seems like a return to religion in a movie for you from when you played an altar boy early on in The Exorcist Three in 1990? I was a fan of The Exorcist, actually, coincidentally, or maybe not co so Maybe not such a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. Uh, I admire the actor Jason Miller a lot from The Exorcist, and I always wanted to play a part like that. And since I was young, I, I, I saw The Exorcist probably too young. I was probably too young when I when I did see it frightening movie and it kind of got me to join the altar boy uh i became an altar boy i was already going to catholic grade school and uh i know a lot of a lot of my classmates were were altar boys and uh you know the priesthood was seemed you know there was something that 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 drew me to, I don't know, the idea of being a priest. And um, I felt kind of validated when I got into further into films and my love for films. And uh, when I discovered Martin Scorsese and reading about him and his life and his, he, he also wanted to be a priest at one point. And I, I, I related to that. Now, what that means, I, uh, you know, my life since then, contemplating what it means to want to be a priest, and because he ended up a director. When I worked with him, it was like, you know, he was the most approachable person uh, to me. I think he just seemed to know where I was coming from. I had a great audition with him, you know, and... uh he was like a guidance counselor or something. Well, like a priest. <laughs> like just a person who, whose job or calling it was to, to listen to people. And listening is, is like, it's uh, the most important part of being, you know, that has something to do with it too, just being, being an artist and uh, being observant and empathetic all of those things looking at humanity and and um owner wrote the script and it came along i i had no idea that he says he had me in mind when he wrote it but i i, I don't know you know wrote a character that spoke to so many of the things that uh so many of the issues and uh, that i that i that 
preoccupied with, you know, uh, and by that I mean spiritual matters, spiritual issues. Uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I had lost uh, someone very close to me a few months before the owner sent me this script uh, and was um, thinking night and day all about that person. It was my mother uh, and her spirit, if you will, and the possibility of, of a soul and my my own feelings and, you know, maybe, you know, the way people, uh, you know, the, the, when, they, when you look at an obituary and it says so-and-so survived by uh, and uh, the, the whole idea of, of the deceased living on through loved ones, you know, the owner's script just spoke to all of those ruminations and in, 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 a, in a beautiful way, in a, in a, in a way that we, we could share with people, you know, in the, in the form of a, of a comedy, drama, or whatever, you know, the movie. And what about your return to acting with Henry Fool himself again in a movie, Thomas J. Ryan as fellow priest Father James? I was delighted to, to be reunited with with my Henry Fool co-star. <laughs> by any chance be calling in from a church no 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 i'm at home i'm just home in my room now you're playing frank sinatra in an upcoming film the playboy interview what can you say about that film and what intrigued you about wanting to play frank sinatra um it i not a film uh, it's a it's a it's a podcast it's a it's it's more of a like a radio play that's the way i looked at it it's a podcast it, it's um the producer of of the podcast you had got a hold of all of these um out of print uh playboy interviews from the 60s from the, like the 60s and the 70s and uh, the, the idea was to get actors to to record actors playing the interviews as if they were scripts so there's an interview with Frank Sinatra and I, I was asked to, 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 to do uh, I'm kind of I'm somewhat steeped in the world of you know vintage music and movies and actors i'm always reading 
actors and musicians' biographies always have um, you know, a little something about Sinatra. I, I couldn't resist, you know. I, I, I you know, it, it came my way, and I took it. It's coming out in September, I think. But I, I, I had a lot of, I, I you know, I'm, I, I like to think that I in, gave an informed reading of the Sinatra interview. It turns out that the that the that the uh, the interview was ghost written. It wasn't uh, transcribed from from a tape recording at all. Uh, the the uh, the person who wrote quote unquote conducted the interview was actually Sinatra's publicist, and uh, Frank said, uh, "Just send me the uh, the questions," and um, and then he told the guy to just to, to make up the answers, mm-hmm. and the guy did, and he 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 knew Sinatra well enough to to capture his voice. So when I was as an actor. There was a, a, a kind of a, a rhythm there. The, the material had a kind of a swing to it. It was definitely Sinatra's voice. So the, the guy got a, captured him. You know, he captured him. And even Sinatra said, was said to have, uh, uh, he, he approved of, of the piece after he read it. He, you know, he didn't mind, uh, you know, he, he got his blessing. And you're known for playing criminals a drug dealer, kidnapper, bank robber, and hitman. Would you say those choices are by design or coincidence? I'd say they were of the parts that were available to me, and maybe that is a coincidence that I was uh, right for the parts and that I... Shame on me for for knowing how to play those parts. And any last word on scenes from an empty church? I'm just happy that it's. I'm I'm, I'm happy that that scenes from an empty church is is, is getting released. It's uh, you know sometimes you read you read a script and you wish you'd written it, and uh, sometimes rarely you know once in a while uh, something is very. Uh, so reflective of your own thoughts that uh, I'm just happy that it's out that it's out there that people can can see it because uh, um, it's you don't see movies like like scenes from an empty church very much these days. It's just about people and uh, it's. Um, Anyway, that's that's uh, my eloquent response to your question. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Kevin Corrigan, for calling into our show. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, Prairie. My pleasure. Okay. Bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. And Scenes from an Empty Church is out now in release. And next up on the show, Our Man in Cannes. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro covers the rather unusual opening of the Cannes Film Festival, likewise connected to the current pandemic, and what it has to do with this Yeats poem, Bro will explain, along with delving into the Cannes premiere of the Todd Haynes unconventional music documentary, The Velvet Underground. First, that poem, The Second Coming, then Bro reporting from Cannes. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert a shape 
with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know the twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. This is Bro on the World Film Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Con 2021. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. It may be a bit cruel starting with Yeats' summary of his era in his epic poem, The Second Coming, but unfortunately, it's a somewhat accurate distillation of both the organization and the films of this edition of the world's leading film festival. This post-COVID confinement version of the festival featured maximum healthcare restrictions for the con elite and minimum restrictions for everyone else. Thus, to enter the Palais, where the competition screenings are held amid the splendor of the red carpet, you are required to have either a QR barcode proving two-shot vaccination in France or a 48-hour COVID test. It's mandatory in France to wear a mask inside, but for the opening ceremony, attended by the French Riviera and Global 1%, both Variety and Screen reported that as soon as the lights went out, many of the elite removed their masks and were not reminded by ushers to put them back on. Meanwhile, for the majority of screenings, stocked with lower-level press and students, and many of which are now moved out of Cannes and are a 45-minute bus ride away, there were no health restrictions. This year, the entire festival bureaucracy has moved online, which caused much initial chaos. While the streaming services and their digital monopolies are being kept at a distance, not allowed entry into the main competition, the virtual rules the festival. All tickets are online in a system that often crashes, contains no summary of the 135 films in the festival now that the festival book is eliminated, and short circuits the human contact of waiting online with other dedicated filmgoers. The online system has, like French organization as a whole, the appearance of elegance, while being both inefficient and overly rule-bound. What makes it work is that the French people staffing the festival are able to help as they can, humanizing this mechanization just as they have always done with earlier versions of French bureaucracy. But once the system is automated, those lacking technical expertise are practically useless. What used to be the press room still exists, but this year there are no computers since the usual sponsor, Hewitt Packard, dropped out. The room is nothing but a series of electrical outlets and remains most often empty. What a perfect symbol of what has happened to the press over the last decade is hedge funds buy up newsrooms, deplete the staff, and sell off part of the real estate, gutting major papers. In a rapidly deteriorating world plagued by multiple pandemics involving climate change, COVID, drugs, inequality, and racism, the usual blather about the sanctity of the auteur or the cinema director, since the films they make are often not confronting these problems, sounds simply like French industry speak. Indeed, that's what it is, as the French cinema and theater owners are using this year's edition to relaunch their films now backlogged from COVID with over 450 films vying for attention as they are poured onto the market after the lockdown and facing the American streaming services who use the lockdown to launch their films online. Because of the restrictions also, there is very little product or presence here from the BRICS, those countries, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, which together account for 40% of the world's population. This is a major shunting aside of what is supposed to be a global festival. The best do not lack all conviction, but much conviction is shunted aside or squandered in NGO gobbledygook, such as the Chadian director Hahamet Salah Haroum, who makes very good films like The Screaming Man about the poverty in neocolonial Africa, but who told the Western press that he was not Chadian, but rather he spoke the global language of cinema. Well-intentioned but somewhat empty also is a special section called Cinema for the Climate. At this point, if that cinema is not exposing the fossil fuel companies or industrialized fishing magnates, which are destroying the land and the oceans, it's really engaging in greenwashing, which most often, instead of combating these companies, proposes individual solutions to the global problem. Emblematic is the film Bigger Than Us, about a teenager from Bali 
whose Bye Bye Plastic campaign got the island to ban plastic bags, straws, and styrofoam cups. Helpful, but hardly controversial, and we are beyond the point where planting trees and recycling will solve the problem. Todd Haynes' documentary on, entitled The Velvet Underground, is about a band who had few convictions to begin with. Haynes tells the story of this proto-punk group of misfits, outsiders who railed against the musical establishment, which at that time was the industry's embrace of the hippie era and the Velvet's West Coast avant-garde rivals, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. In the dark church of music, which never is of land or sea alone, but blooms within the air inside the mind, patterns in motion and action, successions of processionals, Moving with majesty of certainty to part the unparted curtains. Their story is told largely in their own words with the avant-garde composer John Cale, whose atonal drone was an essential part of the music as a major source for the film. The band was supported by Andy Warhol and sometimes described as his marionettes. But the real genius was a drug-addled bisexual Lou Reed, who was able to channel all of his obsessions into a music that in cynical embrace of his truth linked to the French poets Baudelaire, Verlaine, and especially the tortured youth Rambeau. While anticipating the return to basics musical revolution that was to come, here symbolized by punk folky Jonathan Richman, who saw the band in Boston 75 times and for whom they were his mentor. A fascinating recounting of a group of visionary artists, too many of whom, including Reed and the German vocal enchantress Nico, who plays the path for Debbie Harry and Blondie, died young, victims of a society which did not tolerate their alternate lifestyle. This is Bro on the World Cinema Beat, Breaking Glass. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with a special presentation from our radio drama corner, an adventure in, you might say, a specialty on Arts Express, experimental journalism. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. American artist Eli Valley created his Diaspora Boy comics because of his anger with the corruption of the American Jewish institutions and the so-called Jewish, quote, leaders that he, like myself, was constantly exposed to as a young boy and continues to this day. I think it's hard for many American Jews to talk about Zionism in Israel. So many of us come from families who had faced genocides themselves, and the right to a Jewish state seemed almost axiomatic after World War II. I, I know that was true for me. But as subsequent history showed, and as we watch with horror the massacre of the Palestinians in Gaza by the Israelis time after time, we cannot deny that the state of Israel is constituted as an apartheid state whose goal is the destruction of the rights and existence of the Palestinian people. Without the Abe Foxmans of the Anti-Defamation League and the Sherman Adelsons of the world smoothing the way for vast quantities of American military and financial aid, the American-Israeli project in the Mideast would be much more difficult to carry out. So, when a fellow Jew speaks up in a way that can really get my attention through the subversive medium of comics, it's something, in my opinion, to be applauded. Visually, Eli Valley's comics in Diaspora Boy are a mixture of the old Mad Magazine's Harvey Kurtzman comics and the Arkham Underground strips of the 60s. Diaspora Boy ran largely in the Jewish Forward newspaper, but as Valley describes in the valuable introduction to the collection of comics published by OR Press, his strips were often censored. 
There were many tussles with the editor of the paper, and when a strip did get through that satirized some prominent American Jewish leader by name, he was sure to get responses that called him a self-hating Jew or a capo and so on. Well, we're obviously on the radio here, so I can't share the visuals, but I'll read to you one nine-panel strip, which is basically a monologue by an American Jew trying to make sense of a news story that reported that Israeli settlers had burned alive a Palestinian boy. Our hope is not yet lost. We probably met before. <laughs> Call me author. My secretary calls me art, feel free. I'm pretty active in the Jewish world. Fundraising, trips to Israel, VIP sessions with Bibi, Natali Avigdor, you name it. Look, I've been in this field for years, seen it all and know what to say. Land confiscation? No partner for peace. Cages in Hebron? It's worse in Syria. A settlement boycott? You're delegitimizing our state. But this, the kid was burnt alive, doused in gasoline, set on fire. Some say forced to drink the gasoline first. I don't. That's where I couldn't. That's where I just stopped. I lost it. Sure, okay, they were lone murderers. The exception. And the police, who horrifically beat the kid's cousin. Also, exceptions. And the race riots, the lynch mobs, the calls for vengeance by Bibi, Natali, and Abigdor? Same exceptions. There had to be. I forgot when, but at some point I stopped and said, What if I'm wrong? What if they're not? The exception, but a natural outgrowth of the system itself. An auto de fe of brutal violence against people who aren't allowed to vote. And it went on like that. What if I've been living a lie? Teaching our kids a lie? Campaigning for a lie? What if much of what I've been funding, defending, parading for decades is a smoldering horror show? Gasoline that's been slowly burning our religion itself to ashes. And the thoughts were killing me. There was no way out. I was slipping into darkness. I fell on the floor crying for that kid, for everything. I was spinning out of control. I wanted to quit it all. And then a glimmer, the assailants met at a soccer game. started to make sense. It wasn't about Israel or race or hatred. It's just that 
horrible hooligan sport. The glimmer grew brighter. This is World Cup season. It's a bigger sport than the Olympics, and countries all over the world have hooligans. That's not our culture. Those aren't our boys. Hooligans aren't even Jewish. It's an anti-Semitic movement. It's got fascist roots. Fascism. This wasn't a murder by Jews. How could we call them Jews? It was a murder by anti-Semites. And at that moment, at last, I could exhale. I could get up. I could go on. And I began to feel a peace and serenity that had eluded me for almost an entire week. I can go on. And you've been listening to a comic strip from Diaspora Boy, a collection of comics by Eli Valley, published by O.R. Press. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.